You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Before we get started with today's episode, a quick warning for you. Today we'll be touching on the subject of mental health and suicide. As arguments for the legalisation of cannabis have gone mainstream, research, data and scientific information has often been left playing catch-up. In the UK, there's particular concern about the prevalence of high THC cannabis, the use of which can have grave consequences. He was admitted to an acute psychiatric ward, I think, ten times. He tried to take his own life six times. The relationship between the use of cannabis and psychosis is still slightly uncertain and is being researched and investigated further. What is certain, though, is that for those who suffer, recovery is not straightforward. If a cannabis addict who is suffering psychosis goes to a cannabis addiction group, they find it really, really hard to fit in there. They they don't identify with it, they can't really be helped because they are experiencing psychosis. So what causes some cannabis users to develop mental health issues and how effectively can they be treated? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Today, when the high goes bad. Turn on the TV and you might be surprised to see some of the UK's most recognisable chefs trying it out in food in California where it's legal. We're going to get high on high tea. Yes, high tea. I'm not smoking cannabis, that is it. We're We're not not smoking it. So what are you doing with it? We're eating it. I'm not eating cannabis. But it's a new thing. Top Hollywood actors are running their own marijuana businesses. I love weed and, and I've seen that... I'm able to talk about it and communicate what I love about it in a way that other people who love weed uh, receive it well. And here in the UK, mainstream music artists have made documentaries on the subject of legalisation. I'm Professor Green, and over the years I've had a long relationship with weed. A time when cannabis laws around the world are evolving, should we legalise weed? Back in June, I hope you were able to catch an episode of Stories of Our Times about students taking drugs during lockdown. Manveen spoke to a student who we called Claire about drug use at her university. I won't have a single night out or even like a single day without seeing drugs. I say night out in terms of I'm meaning a night where you're drinking inside the accommodations and it's just is everywhere. It's very easily accessible for students, I think. That story was written by Megan Agnew. I'm a commissioning editor and writer on the Sunday Times magazine. She was intrigued by one of the subjects that seemed to come up time and again while writing that article. Talking to a lot of the students about the cannabis that they were smoking, a lot of them were shocked by the addictive nature of it. There's this funny narrative around smoking weed that it's non-addictive. 
and that it's pretty comparatively harmless. And I think a lot of the students that I spoke to were quite shocked having come out the other end of smoking a lot of it in lockdown, how much they saw it, it affected their mental health. And also speaking to a lot of the researchers, the people who worked at drug addiction charities, their worry was often cannabis more than anything else, particularly the high potency skunk and the number of young people that they were seeing with very, very severe mental health disorders, including psychosis. Megan's new article, published for you to read in the Sunday Times magazine that we're discussing on today's episode, is about the rising number of cases of psychosis among users of skunk, a super-strength cannabis. One of those she's spoken to is Ad Gridley. He went on his gap year when he was 18 to Canada, and he smoked his first joint when he was there. And I think before then, he will say it himself, had a bit of trouble at school, never really felt like he found his place. And then suddenly he had this crew of snowboarding stoners, like the most stereotypical group. And they sat around and they rolled joints and they passed them and they chatted. And that's a huge part of the culture of of smoking weed is that you share it and you do it together. And that was very appealing to him. I would never be alone (laughs) when I had the weed. Because uh, I, I knew immediately that I would be like guest of honour, even though it's just me, and there's and there's a slight trace of weed smell in the, in the, in the air. I, I would be like, I've arrived. I'm like back in my throne room, uh, even though like sitting in the lounge, actually on the floor. But um, it was very very addictive that that kind of feeling. He suddenly felt like he had his people, and it also gave him what he calls a sense of hypervigilance, which was feeling of knowing stuff, of knowing the connections between things, of feeling almost spiritual, which is quite a familiar way of describing the feeling of being stoned. It's something that we hear in songs and written about. So, so that sort of feels familiar. But then he started smoking more he basically only just went to work every day and that was it. I went to Canada, of course, in Banff in the Rockies, beautiful place. In all the year, I was there. I took about five photos, I think. I don't know where they are. I didn't do any kayaking or hiking. His world got smaller. And this, this hypervigilance that came back to the UK and it became paranoia. It got mm. worse and worse. You can kind of see how that spectrum works, is that what first becomes you listening out for things or spotting patterns or thinking that something's a signal from something else, slowly but surely became this sprawling, sprawling web of conspiracy and paranoia for him. He thought that people putting their hands up in lectures was signals from MI5 He thought that his lecturer was in on it. I mean, it was frightening for him. It quickly became very frightening. What is it like speaking to him now as he kind of reflects on that period of his life? What were you kind of feeling as well as you reflected with him almost? I had never spoken to somebody who had suffered episodes of psychosis before I worked on this story. And the thing that struck me most about it was how 
these stories he recounted as being true. That was what happened. You're ready to sleep. It's like soft, dry, warm, dark, silent conditions, perfect for sleep. And then, bang, suddenly the door downstairs bursts through. SWAT teams, authorised by the government, run up the stairs, grab you by your feet, down the stairs, into the street where they're awaiting 4x4, police 4x4, drag you around the streets. And from that point on, all bets are off. You're the victim with a capital V, known throughout the world. All of these things that, if you see written down on paper, as somebody who is not psychotic, you think, my God, obviously that can't be true. How on earth did you believe that? But what really struck me, speaking to him and speaking to other people who had these episodes of psychosis, was that it was totally real to him. And of course that he knows now it didn't happen or it can't have happened, but he still speaks about it as if it happened to him because at that time, that was his reality. Before we go any further, we should probably explain what the mental health condition referred to as psychosis actually is. So there are two main symptoms of psychosis, which is hallucinations, which is when someone hears or sees or feels something that other people can't. And it's also delusions, which is sort of conspiracies or thinking that there is something that is against them. How quickly did he connect cannabis with the psychosis that he was experiencing and that you've just described? It took about 15 years and he was admitted to an acute psychiatric ward, I think, 10 times. He tried to take his own life six times. The problem he thinks now was that in these acute psychiatric wards, they didn't consider his cannabis as an addiction. They saw it as something that he did regularly that probably caused the psychosis. So they just get rid of the cannabis the moment that you walk through the door. You're not allowed to smoke weed. Fine, done. The problem is, is that every time that he would leave the psychiatric ward, he hadn't had any help in replacing the cannabis addiction in the real world. So he'd come out and he saw smoking weed as the cure. That was the sacred herb that made everything better. And so he would return to it again and again. And I think it also, there's something about being at the centre of a conspiracy that where you think that you know this great big secret that's incredibly appealing. Psychiatric wars are quite scary and isolating. So I think when you come out the other side, it is very, very common for cannabis addicts suffering from psychosis to return to it. You mentioned there that he had tried to take his own life several times. Clearly the, the, the sort of psychosis was really taking a grip and affecting him constantly, all the time, with that sort of intense level of paranoia. Does he identify a kind of turning point where he actually, I don't know, where, where something switched in his brain and he thought, hang on a second, this isn't quite right. What was that moment for him? In his final stay in a psychiatric hospital, I realised that I'd made it all up. Uh, I mean, so I thought, well, um, and then also there was like the guilt and embarrassment I was causing my family uh, and a couple of friends who made it. Um, 
it was like, who am I to keep putting them through all this? He doesn't really know why that happened or what caused that epiphany, but the fact is that he had it and he felt very embarrassed for his family. And he also, he said that suddenly his world was silent, that his world for 15 years had been filled with voices and ticking clocks and messages and signals and he was exhausted. And suddenly when he was on antipsychotic medication and when he quit cannabis... I walked into an empty room and I could hear quietness. There's no, no sounds, no voices. Which I found quite shattering, actually. Let's go on to find out about the kind of, the issue, I suppose, the data, the science, um, what is actually going on here. Because you said a moment ago that this sort of potent type of cannabis is basically the only one that's around in the UK at the moment. How have we got to this point? Is it is it to do with production methods? Is it to do with demand? I'm just trying to understand why it has got more potent and, and why that is almost the unique Uh, option when it comes to kind of getting hold of cannabis now? There are a few reasons and most of it comes down to technology. You can't grow cannabis in the UK in a field. The the climate's not right. So, I mean, up until the 90s, it was grown mainly in North Africa, the supply that we had, and it was grown in big fields and it was a mixed crop and it would get cut down and condensed into a resin, which is called hash. And they condense it down like that because hash is odourless and you can make it much smaller and you can smuggle it in to different countries more easily. And then in the 90s, something called hydroponic technology was available to buy and set up in your home, which basically meant that you could grow plants with UV lights in trays of water in climates that they couldn't grow in otherwise. So over the years the plants were literally bred depending on how stoned it made you, depending on how strong it was and the feedback from the clients. It was pretty cowboy farming. So now we're left with the strongest strains. And I think now it's around 94% of cannabis that you buy on the street recreationally is super high potency, which means that it's got very high levels of THC, which is the thing that makes you feel stoned and also the thing that turns you psychotic and very low levels of CBD, which is the component they think protects you from those things. And it's also the component that helps with anxiety and helps you sleep. And in its purest form, you can buy from Holland and Barrett. What about researchers then, I suppose, those that are kind of looking into this, those that are diving into it? What are the kind of researchers saying about the effect of those smoking this particularly potent, high in THC strain, I suppose, or whatever, of cannabis? Well, the two things that have developed with high THC cannabis, or skunk as what it's otherwise called, is addiction and psychosis. I think the first episode of psychosis, what they believe to be induced by cannabis, is recorded in 1987. And it's certainly only in the last 20 years or so that people have started going to addiction clinics to say that they're addicted to cannabis. So people have been smoking it for thousands of years, but it's only in the last 50 or so with rising THC levels that, that those two things have happened. In terms of psychosis, 
The study of 780 people showed that psychosis was three times more likely among those who use skunk at weekends than those who don't, and five times more likely for those who use it every day. It is pretty controversial as to how much we can directly link them, mainly because they just don't know why some people can smoke weed and be fine and other people can smoke it and have really acute um, mental health conditions as a result. I wish I'd known that there were you know, proper uh, downsides to it because I thought I'd researched it. I thought, okay, the munchies, giggling, mm. bit of memory loss, seems okay. I passed my 11 plus and I, you know, <laughs> uh, my mind will never turn on me. Mm. But then a couple of years later, I found that, uh, you know, I couldn't hear myself think, and I'd be in a quiet room. Coming up, we hear about a new treatment for people with cannabis-induced psychosis. Hi, this is Tom Whipple, Science Editor for The Times. Thanks for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For Ad, who we met a moment ago, it took a number of years to get a treatment which helped him kick his cannabis habit and, crucially, to stay off it. Megan spoke to Dr. Marta DeForti, a senior fellow at King's College London, who runs the cannabis clinic for patients with psychosis, where Ad was treated. She has set up a clinic, which is an NHS clinic. It's based in South London. And it is the only clinic in the UK that's public health service and that helps cannabis addicts who are suffering psychosis. What happens there? Tell us about her work. So it's a 15-week long course and she helps these people who otherwise fall between the gaps between between services. Another thing that I didn't quite realise until I spoke to her and worked with her was 
how specific this group of people are. So a cannabis addict who is suffering psychosis goes to a cannabis addiction group. They find it really, really hard to fit in there. They they don't identify with it. They can't really be helped because they are experiencing psychosis. The flexibility in understanding that if you have somebody with psychosis and you give them an appointment and they don't turn up, doesn't mean that they are not motivated, which is usually the signal that people in addiction get. You know, if you are addicted and you are given three consecutive appointments and you don't attend, you get discharged. Mm. Because addiction services would say we can only work with people that are motivated. But if you're psychotic, you might not leave the house because three bangs on your window in the morning by a bird might mean that MI5 is coming to get you. And I'm almost directly quoting a martyr there in that example. She said that she wouldn't have any patience if if she played by that rule. You have to be much more flexible. In terms of the other side of the services, why cannabis addicts don't do so well in psychiatric hospitals is, as with ADD, you are made to quit on the first day and they just don't really have the tools yet to deal with cannabis addiction. So then they leave and they often return to it. So Marta has set up a clinic for those people in the middle who aren't really served by either side at the moment. As part of your reporting on this, you you got to sit in on a group session which she was taking. What was that like? How How did it work? Give us a sort of inside seat on that group session as well. They have this group session every Tuesday afternoon and I actually spent about a month, over a month attending. It's on Zoom and they have a speaker at the beginning and they will be an expert or a researcher into cannabis or an ex-addict themselves. And they sort of give a short talk about how it's addictive or how they got over it. And then afterwards, there's a group discussion. Everyone's in such a different stage of recovery. There are people who are still inpatients in wards. There are people who have been recovered for a decade. And it's pretty chaotic. And it's really opinionated. People really properly disagree with each other openly about the effect that cannabis has on them. But it's healthy discussion. And Marta, Dr. DeForti's point being that she wants to provide a group and a space where people can learn about cannabis and learn about the research and the different types of research. And then they can go on to make an educated decision as to whether they want to smoke it or not. And I think in most addiction services, it is proven that if it's your decision, then you are much more likely to remain abstinent. Whereas if you are just forced to go cold turkey without really addressing all of those issues, then you're more likely to return. So clearly, learning and research and education are vital. E-vouchers are one of the other tools those in the clinic benefit from. This idea has been borrowed from treating people living with heroin addiction. One really successful part of the clinic are these vouchers that patients can receive depending on whether they reach a goal. And the goal is decided by them. It might be to cut down on one joint a day or two or attend a clinic consistently for three weeks in a row. And so they receive a voucher and it means that they can 
purchase various things in, in various different shops. So it might be a DJ deck if they're really into music and want to maybe pursue a career in music, or it might be a laptop eventually, or it might be something as simple as paint for the walls because their house has gone into disrepair because they've spent the last year not really being aware of it. It is such a range of things and it's much more basic and simple often than you'd think, but it, it works really well according to DeForti. Well, yeah, absolutely. And so we need to consider, I guess, the successes of her clinic and her treatment. What are the kind of results looking like? Well, these people have given up for much longer than they ever have done before. There was one woman who was part of the group who said that her daughter had never ever met her sober, not stoned. And when I was attending the group, had met every milestone that that she had wanted to. She had been sober for about a month from cannabis. She felt energetic again. She said that she was dancing around the kitchen. She said that she had lots of time on her hands which is also can be an issue because obviously all the time that you normally spend smoking or, or with other people who are stoned needs to be filled. But yeah, there's a huge amount of, of encouragement between them all. And I think for a group that otherwise felt quite excluded, either in hospital or at cannabis addiction centres, they have a real sense of community between themselves, especially around their achievements. That's so interesting what you say there about part of the treatment being simply finding something else to do where your time would usually be spent on this particular activity. Actually, a lot of the way to kind of overcome it is to find something else to keep you busy. I think that's really difficult. I think that's really tricky. And as Ad told me... It seems like, a, at first, it's a very social drug. Um, you know, you can't pass a bottle of beer around a circle in the same way as you can a joint sort of thing. It's about some sort of spiritual destination that you're all going to. And so your world becomes smaller to those people inevitably. And lots of people on the group said that they had to completely change friends. They had to reject those friends entirely because that's all they did together was get stoned. I wonder if we can move on to consider... Uh, the classic, the age-old question about cannabis and its legalisation, first of all. It has been legalised in a few countries. It's, it's kind of often talked about as being on the on the short list, I suppose, or under consideration for legalisation in the UK. Um, is there any kind of feeling on, on whether that is a good thing or a bad thing from those that you've spoken to, either people like Ad or indeed Dr DeForti? Ad is quite cautious, I think, mainly because in hindsight he sees such a big disparity between what he thought cannabis would do to him and what it eventually did. That's not to say that everyone suffers that, but that is the sticking point, is that we still don't know why some people have such extreme reactions and other people don't at all. Dr. DeForti does not comment on legalisation. She doesn't really see herself as being politically involved. My contribution to the debate on legalisation is, one, providing data to make sure that if this country goes for legalisation, we do it by, first of all, or along the side, putting together a proper public education campaign, mm. as we can do. We've done it with tobacco, we do it with alcohol all the time. So that people make it for a choice as an informed choice, but also that there are more resources for those people who come to harm. She, interestingly, 
said that tobacco's not safe, alcohol's not safe. That doesn't mean they have to be illegal, but we have to be aware in order for us to make free consumer decisions. I was taught about alcohol withdrawal and uh, opiate withdrawal and uh, about uh, uh, nicotine withdrawal when I did my psychiatric training now in the um, early 2000s, but I was never mentioned cannabis withdrawal. We have to be aware of the dangers that we're entering into and the dangers that we're choosing. And I don't think that the research around cannabis is quite robust enough at this time, 30 years into these illnesses, to properly make that judgment. It's very interesting. And I, I just, it's so fascinating also to hear that the suggestion is that the research isn't enough. There is not enough information. And then you put that alongside the fact that the cannabis in the UK particularly has kind of evolved to this potent strain. Is there any chance of the two colliding or is the research always going to be behind where the cannabis users, I suppose, are at? I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because the more the numbers go up, the more evidence there is, sadly. I think another problem is that in the UK, we have this super, super, super strong skunk. And that is alongside legalisation in the US and North America and in Canada, where it is technically getting safer. So we have the culture of the US of the safe cannabis market drifting over us and influencing our decisions while consuming highly illegal, high potency, high THC cannabis in the UK without realising the disparity between the two. What did the people that you met um, during this reporting, Megan, what did they see as their role now as they kind of recover, I suppose, from the difficulties that they've faced? Are they quite evangelistic almost about the the harms of, of cannabis and of skunk? It really varies. I think most of them just want people to be aware of, of the impact that it's had on their lives. Their opinions on legalisation vary, but... They are all desperate for people to know the imprint, like Ad said, that it's left on their minds. And also the years that they spent living in a completely different reality to somebody else, to to everyone else. And they're now trying to piece together those years and work out what really happened when what they were experiencing was completely different. I think that is immensely, immensely unsettling. It's just so much damage like being done. Even if it's just uh, on TV and things, it's like every talk show host is like, yeah, you've got high with Snoop Dogg, how did you do? Or, you know, or Seth Rogen's going on about it. And it's like, there's actually quite a bit of fallout like behind the scenes that's really damaging families. They're very keen to counteract the pop culture and wellness culture that that we have around around cannabis and not get rid of it but at least provide another story yeah that's so interesting you mentioned ad as well then let's let's consider where he is at now he seems to be on on doing better i think than than when he was at his most psychotic how is his treatment is he doing all right what's the latest on him He's writing a book. He's creative now, again, which I think he lost while he was smoking. He is very close with his family again. 
He is cheerful. He goes around the country and does talks at universities and advises researchers and scientists who are looking into cannabis-induced psychosis. I spent like 25 years trying to get back to my academic self. That was was like 96. uh, And I wanted to be a a psychologist. And now, through my story, I can help psychologists. He feels like he has a role in society again. And I think that is obviously feels very good for him when he locked himself in his room for 15 years. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald, and my guest today was Sunday Times magazine commissioning editor and writer Megan Agnew. Now, if you're a subscriber, you can read more of Megan's work at thetimes.co.uk. And if you're not a subscriber, well, you're missing out on Megan's work and the work of the rest of the brilliant team at The Times and The Sunday Times. Of course, you can read it all in the paper if you want to catch it in print and you can read Megan on Sundays. The producer of our episode today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer was Asia Fuchs and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please, please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. The email address is storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks very much, and I'll see you again soon.